welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC the opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. I am really excited about today's episode. Um, today we are talking about technical standards and essential skills to be a veterinarian. Um, many AAVMC institutions, but certainly not all of them, have documents that outline specific um, mental and physical capacities and capabilities that prospective students to the DVM program should have um, and should or should be able to demonstrate in order to be a, a veterinarian. But what we've seen over the years is that as more schools kind of stretch how they think about education, um, how education is conceptualized, as well as how the profession is conceptualized, um, those um, in terms of what skills are, are essential, we've seen an increased number of students um, and subsequently professionals who um, have various kinds of disabilities entering the profession. Um, and that's, that's not a bad thing, but we certainly recognize that there's a lot of diversity in how institutions go about um, thinking about this issue. And so today I wanna tease through that a bit um, with my guest. Um, we recognize that for some folks, this might be a touchy issue um, for any number um, of, of reasons, not the least of which is that they um, may think that, you know, hey, come one, come all, and that's not, a, that's not a bad position, but we recognize that there may be some things that we might need to think about in terms of um, how this all works. So my goal today is to kind of tease through some of these larger issues related to these technical skills, um, and technical standards and essential skill documents, and really to kind of carve out some key information that prospective students might really need to know as they um, get ready to apply to a professional DVM program, either here in the U.S. or abroad. So I am so pleased today to welcome my three guests, um, Dr. Chris Clark from the University of Saskatchewan. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Yep, All absolutely. right. Good deal. <laughs> um, Dr. Coretta Patterson uh, at Midwestern University and Dr. Joseph Taboda from LSU, Louisiana State University. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you, Hi. So, uh, Chris, I'd really like for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, tell us what's going on in uh, Saskatoon, besides the fact that it is really cold. It is very cold here today. That's true. No, so I'm the Associate Dean Academic here. And I maybe, before we get into what we do here, I'd like to hear the others talk about it because I'm up here in Canada in the province of Saskatchewan. And so our legal framework that we operate under is a little different. So I wonder if it might be better for somebody in the US to kick off and then I can talk a little bit about some of the differences in the legislative framework. Okay. All right. So uh, Coretta, why don't you tell us what you uh, do at Midwestern and then we'll have Joe. So just my job title? Yeah. Oh, what I do? Okay. Well, right now I'm basking in 75 degrees sunny. So sorry, Chris, <laughs> um, with like 0% humidity. Um, but I'm the Associate Dean for Clinical Education um, so I oversee uh, the curriculum within our college and also uh, in curriculum is loosely because all of the faculty obviously um, have a role in that, but also the clinic schedules and rotations. All right. And, uh, and Joe? 
So I'm the Associate Dean for um, Veterinary Education and Student Affairs and I'm at Louisiana State University and that encompasses um, basically everything from when the students decide that they want to become a veterinarian when they're seven years old up until uh, they graduate from the, from the school. So admissions falls under uh, my office, but so does the curriculum and managing the students um, once they're here. So from the perspective of technical standards, uh, my office really thinks about them and deals with them from the standpoint of admissions, but then also from the standpoint of the curriculum as well. All right. So I am going to pick on Coretta uh, to kind of <laughs> tell us a little bit about uh, what the standards are. So um, for folks that don't know, Coretta is a bit of a, um, as most academics are, boomerang. She was previously at Michigan State University and now is at uh, uh, Midwestern. So um, why don't you tell us a bit about technical standards and essential skills, as you know it, and, and a little bit about your experience uh, and looking at those and, and, and dealing with those documents at, at these institutions. So the way that I interpret and appreciate technical standards, I, I, there was probably some legal case at some point that, that resulted in an institution saying, we need to be able to say to a prospective student, these are the, the skills that you need to be in possession of to, to successfully navigate not just the curriculum, but the licensing examinations that will enable you to go on to be a practicing practitioner of veterinary medicine or human medicine or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think that over time, we've probably, like so many things, we've learned more about human neuroscience and, and um, the technical standards have probably blossomed and developed over time. And we've had uh, more people that have had challenges that maybe in the past wouldn't have been thought of being able to be successful in veterinary medicine that have now, we appreciate and understand that we need to be able to figure out a way to, to work with these individuals and to help them. So and for example, um, we've had a number of hearing impaired students um, at Michigan State when I was associate dean there, and we provided um, people that uh, knew ASL so that they could help them um, in clinics and in class. And I, and I don't think that that's an unreasonable request, and I don't think it was um, this huge thing that we needed to do to assist them. So I think it's about um, celebrating a, that there's a there's room for a more diverse um, what a veterinarian looks like is it, it should be more diverse as we should be as a society right so I think the technical standards protect students because there probably are some students that may have conditions that we need to be thoughtful about whether or not we can actually facilitate. Um, their learning and and will they be able to practice successfully right but you know but my caveat is what does it mean to practice successfully you know like some could argue that i'm not a successful practitioner so you know <laughs> and you know right now i'm living in a glass house so <laughs> they might be right so there's that uh, so chris, so chris is that a, is that a good setup so far no that's good i mean so so the situation, we uh, the way we um, deal with it in Canada. So first of all, my position, very similar to Joe's, covers admissions, um, curriculum. Right now, I'm responsible for years one through three and student services. And then the students get passed off for their clinical year to one of my colleagues. Um, and so in Canada, the, the legislation that we operate under is the Human Rights Code. We don't have an equivalent of the American Disabilities Act. We, we have the Human Rights Code, which 
states that you're not allowed to discriminate against people for a, a prescribed 11 stations, and one of those is disability. So the, the, basically what we're told is that we have to make reasonable efforts to assist people who would otherwise be denied opportunities, and um, accommodation is required unless it would create undue hardship. Now, under that legislation, and it's been a real experience for me learning about this, working with our university, I have a most amazing resource on campus um, in um, our Associate Dean of um, Access and Equity, sorry, Associate Registrar of Access and Equity. She's really helped me get my head around a lot of these things. So we have an essential skills document. It was actually developed by my predecessor and our dean, and they put a lot of work into it. And what happens is when the students apply to vet school, they actually have to read that essential skills document and sign off on it. And um, it, it goes through a number of the expectations of what a veterinarian should be able to do. Um, it's based very much on the fact that we have a, um, we don't stream here. We, we have a completely general mixed animal practitioner program. So that ties into the essential skills. And the essential skills are also somewhat based on the, um, uh, the clinical proficiency exam that foreign graduates would be asked to do if they were to practice in North America. So it, it goes through very carefully. Sorry, I'm just going to change my window here so I can make sure I read the right heading. So it's based around um, the ability to um, observe, communicate, motor skills, intellectual, conceptual, integrative and qualitative abilities and non-technical attributes and it lays out standards the students would have to meet um, and the thing I'll add that really has changed my perception of a lot of these things is my wife is a veterinarian she's a radiologist and she has profound lupus which has created all sorts of difficulties in her life so you know I actually share a house with somebody who is in and out of a wheelchair um, has mobility issues and lately is developing hand issues in terms of technical abilities with her hand. So we've had some very interesting conversations at home regarding these issues. And I'm not pretending in any way that I have answers, but uh, I'm happy to speak to those conversations as well as we're at with our dealings with uh, the university and our interaction with the human rights code. Mm. Mm. And I think it's important, you know, one in four of our applicants um, apply um, outside of the U.S. And so I think that this is, um, and, it, and it varies from country to country. We know that so um, that um, the way that um, institutions grapple with these issues in the UK is dramatically different even than, you know, the way that we, we deal with them here. And, and, um, and uh, so I certainly encourage applicants to really, um, as they're applying to institutions, look into that. Joe, what's going on down at, at LSU? Do you have um, a document like this and, and how does it work? So at LSU, we, we do not currently have a document such as this. And in fact, we had one um, that was um, written and in place at the time that I became associate dean. Um, and we actually got rid of it um, at that time. And, and I'll tell you why. The, if you look at historically in the United States, the development of technical standards 
um, really started in the medical professions after the Rehabilitation Act in 1973 was passed. Um, and the Rehabilitation Act basically said that any um, school or college or university that, that got federal funding um, would have, could not discriminate against somebody that had a, a disability in terms of admissions to their program or uh, in terms of being able to, uh, you know, complete their, um, their programs. Um, interestingly, it, um, the, the act um, allowed for the service academies, the federal service academies to um, not have to comply with, uh, with the act at that time. Um, but it only, it only dealt with, with um, university and, and school um, type programs. It wasn't until 1990 when the ADA um, was passed, the Americans with Disabilities Act, that it extended um, those protections uh, to, um, to those in the workplace outside of um, schools and universities. Um, and so this was civil rights legislation. Um, so it, it basically created a um, protected class um, that included people with, uh, with the disabilities. Well, at the time in, that, this, that the Rehabilitation Act was, um, was passed, uh, many medical schools looked at this and, and they said, well, you know, that's all good, but you couldn't possibly have a physician that, you know, had X, Y, or Z as a disability. Um, and so they created technical standards initially um, as, a, as a roadblock to um, keeping people um, out of their programs. Uh, and in, in some cases, it, it, you know, and I've seen it in, in, our, in our faculty here as well, as, you know, with dealing with admissions committees and faculty for the past 20 years, um, there are faculty that will say, you know, those seats are too valuable um, to, um, to use one on somebody that, that we can't guarantee is going to be able to get through the, uh, through the program. Um, interestingly, I've heard exactly the same comments made about women coming into the profession 20 years ago. You know, that, that we shouldn't take a seat and use it for somebody that was probably only going to practice for a short period of time or only practice part time. And I think that those same type of, of um, discriminatory types of, of um, reasons um, led to the development of technical standards documents um, in some, at least in some programs um, at that time. Um, other programs, I think, develop technical standards um, documents really as a, as a way of educating potential applicants of what they would have to be able to do in order to complete the, the program. Obviously, a, a much better use of, um, of technical standards. But the way that the technical standards were often worded were to say things like, um, to be a veterinarian, you will have to be able to stand um, in place uh, without uh, moving substantially uh, for an hour's period of time, or you have to be able to see a certain, um, you know, see a certain size font at a certain distance um, away, or you have to be able to discriminate um, with your fingers two different sizes of, of something. You know, thinking about um, something that a veterinarian would do, you have to stand to do surgery. So, you know, well, you, you should have to stand. Well, if the technical standards are written in that way, then somebody who reads that, that can't stand and is in a wheelchair would think, well, I couldn't do that, so I can't be a veterinarian or I at least can't apply um, to that program. 
And the courts in the United States, at least, have fairly consistently ruled that, you know, the, the programs know best what is required of somebody in that program. And so if the technical standard says you have to stand and you don't admit somebody because they can't stand, um, that the universities can, can, um, can back, use those technical standards to back up those decisions. Mm. Uh, and so the technical standards documents that, that we, or we had at that time, I just felt like they, were, they could be perceived as a roadblock to having people apply to the school. And, and so that's why we got rid of the technical standards document at that time. So then I guess my next question is, how do you know, well, how do those prospective students who may really be limited know that maybe this isn't the right fit for them? Uh, I, I guess I, I, I'll start with that. I, I think that um, I, I think that veterinary medicine can potentially be the right fit um, for anybody that has a disability, um, as long as they can complete. Um, and I think that you know the term essential skills is probably a good one, as long as they can complete the essential skills with appropriate um, accommodations. And so the message that we need to send with a, with a technical standards document or an essential skills document is what the skill actually is. And so let's use that surgery example, or surgery as an example. And so a surgeon has to, you know, you could say, well, a surgeon has to stand in order to do surgery. So uh, the technical standard is they have to be able to stand. Well, it, it isn't actually the standing that has anything to do with doing surgery. Um, it's doing the surgery. Um, and you could do surgery in a wheelchair and the accommodation would be to lower the table. Um, right. And so that when technical standards documents are written, they really have to be thought through very carefully in terms of what the end result is that needs to be done, not the way that an able-bodied person would perceive that the way mm -hmm. they would have to, to do it. So don't write your don't write uh, technical standards from an ableist perspective. I guess <laughs> one can take away. It's hard for those of us who are who are able-bodied um, to be able to perceive how we would do something, you know, that we do with our eyes. Say, um, well, how in the world would we use a computer if we couldn't see? And yet, blind people use computers all the time. Right. Um, and so you have to be able to write that standard as to what it is that has to be done so that somebody who does have a disability can say, okay, this is what needs to be done. So how, what type of accommodation, how would I do it? What would I do with my disability? And what would the accommodation that would be necessary for me to be able to do that? Right. So one of the things I think <clears throat> that has been alluded to in, um, in, in the conversation so far is, um, that certainly in the U.S. we 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 like to go to court. <laughs> to, to, that is one major avenue of change. Um, but Chris, you and I had chatted um, um, a few weeks ago about kind of evidence-based um, standard development and and kind of you know what does the literature say about certain safety things? Um, and and um, can you talk a little bit maybe about how those um, how you develop those standards um, really from an evidence-based perspective that that still is, is certainly sensitive to this, well, what kinds of things might be a reasonable accommodation? 
Well, I, I'd like to carry on from what Joe was talking about yeah. because we, you know, our our um, uh, essential skills documents are very much based. We try to base them around competency. So, you know, the the, the competency is um, it describes that students must achieve general proficiency with surgical therapy, um, and we we would measure that uh, at our school through the entrustable professional activities in final year. So, students are expected to be able to spay a dog in two hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know and and so trying to work out how that can be achieved is interesting and we've we've certainly had students with various hand issues um you know and whether it's through working with occupational therapists or using our simulation lab to build their motor skills to be able to achieve that but that is the standard they have to meet um the the thing you talked about the evidence-based thing was something that um Again, I inherited our standards, but it's interesting looking at the language at them. I've been doing some work with the, the um, uh, industrial injury group, the medical school here, and had to, to sit on a panel looking at um, uh, accidents and injuries occurring in agricultural setting. And so the two biggest causes of death or the precipitating factors for death in agricultural settings involving large animals are lack of mobility and hearing impairment. So that was one of the sort of interesting things again, with the general um, uh, that we were sort of struggling with in our in our standards is um, if in a general program where students are going to work with large animals, you know, the risk is something happening, getting a warning shout and being able to get out of the way. And as I said, my wife has been in a wheelchair and she's practiced within the confines of our college in a wheelchair. Um, and while you know, she can do that working on a dog and cat. What you don't want to be doing is trying to ultrasound the tendon on a horse and stocks, even if it's sedated, or even potentially moving through the large animal clinic in a wheelchair with the expectation of things that can happen. So that that's one of those pieces of evidence. There have been, a, I think, three studies done in Canada looking at accidents on agricultural operations, and it always comes down to limited mobility and, and problems with uh, hearing, hearing being the precipitating, precipitating uh, factors for death or extreme injury. Mm -hmm. So Coretta, how did your graduates navigate that? Well, so I've only been here since 16. I'm not certain um, the how the the applicant pool looked for the class of the our current fourth year class, but um, I, I am looking at our um, at our technical standards, and, and one of the things that it that is listed is that the candidate must be able to tolerate physically, mentally, and emotionally taxing workloads, and to function effectively under those conditions. And I think I could argue that at some point, every single one of every single vet student is unable to do that for some short period of time, right? Mm -hmm. Like we 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 all endure that during our daily workday, and I, I I don't know that that I am supportive of that statement being a document <laughs> really. Um, so we we, don't, we currently in our fourth year class don't have any students that have um, visible disabilities, but we do have some that have needed uh, additional time with exams and things like that. And we do have one dog, um, one um, dog that that accompanies a, one of our third year students. Um, I think as an associate dean, and I think the other two might I don't know about in Canada. I always think that you all are more polite. One thing that I've experienced at, that I've experienced at Michigan State with for time, for example, when students had an accommodation for time, the faculty would often ask me, well, why do they need the time? 
Yeah. And I think that's a, a really important piece of this is that it's no one's business. Um, mm -hmm. it's, that's between them and their healthcare providers. And it's not okay for you to ask that. Um, so, and I say that to our students, um, if, if you need a day off because you need a day off, you need a day off. And, and we have paperwork for you to have that time, but you don't deserve, uh, nor should you be subject to an inquiry about why you need to have some time. Um, so I, I think that our students have navigated it well. Our first class, I think, maybe have taken a few liberties because um, there are a few that have missed a lot of days. But, um, you know, I, I would rather the, the, the collective be healthy than uh, to punish the, the few. So I think that I, I, I want to believe that they feel comfortable and they feel supported and they know that should an issue arise that that we will work something out for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just so, like to yeah, with time is, is something we've had some internal debates about and it's actually been quite interesting. And again, I'm very grateful for the support I've received on uh, campus from other people here because we have run into this issue with students who are, have had additional time for examinations, requesting additional time in the surgical suite. Mm. And um, the discussion has been made, and, and you know, I, I'm not a small animal surgeon, but in talking to my colleagues here, the two hour time limit exists for a reason. Um, the longer the abdomen is open, the more chance there is of developing infection and those sorts of things. Right. And so the technical standard of surgical proficiency is you do have to be able to do the surgery in the time that was set for the other classmates. And so you're not allowed. So although we might be able to um, work in additional time, sometimes to gather your thoughts and, and get your notes together when dealing with a patient, the, the surgical time is not extended. Right. Well, and I think it's important for um, students and prospective students to, to understand that um, you know, that the limits on some of those accommodations um, stop at the health and well-being of the of the patient's nose, right? And so, um, and that there, that there, that there is, there is a limit, um, you know, and I, uh, I think that that's important for, for folks to understand, um, particularly in a discipline that's dealing with health and time is um, critically important in, in clinical settings. Yeah. And if you, if you look at the, you know, the whole concept of, of time and what becomes a reasonable accommodation, it's certainly a reasonable accommodation to accommodate somebody in an exam setting that, you know, it's a one hour exam and you've got people that are finishing everywhere from 10 minutes into the exam until one hour into the exam to give somebody that time and a half or that double time um, to take the exam. It, it doesn't become a reasonable accommodation if the accommodation is starting to put a um, patient safety mm -hmm. um, at risk. But the reality is if we look at, at our current students, students that you know, supposedly don't have any um, disabilities, um, they will be able to do that spay in everything from a half an hour up to some of them probably have trouble with that two hour um, time frame. And with appropriate accommodations, the person with a disability is probably going to be in the middle of the class. There will be somebody that takes longer, even though they don't have the, you know, the same disability right. that that other person has. Right. 
Right. And I, I think it's also important to know that accommodation and this is, you know, when we talk about I talk um, when I when I visit schools a lot about the difference between fairness and equity. And so fairness is the process that gets you to equity. Right. And so and so it's that opportunity piece there, recognizing that there's a deficiency and kind of bridging that gap so that everybody's kind of at the same starting point. Um, and I think that, that not everybody understands that. Yeah, the way it was put to me by our um, person on campus, which I think is a wonderful analogy, was she said that accommodations level the playing field, yeah. they don't lower the bar. Right, right, right. So, um, Coretta, and kind of talking about your um, your days at, at Michigan State, um, so um, for those students um, that um, were hearing impaired, and incidentally, I've... I've um, um, heard them in presentation and they were awesome. One of them, I think, is an ER veterinarian um, and just amazeballs. But she, um, you know, she talked about her experience. So how, I mean, the, the, the short version of how you got everybody on board, how, how, how did that happen? <laughs> and how well, did, how were faculty, how did you kind of corral faculty to, to, you know, not that I'm not bashing faculty before anybody <laughs> sends me, <laughs> before anybody gets on the Facebook or page or sends me email, I am not bashing faculty. However, we recognize that change can be challenging. So. Yeah. Well, you know, Michigan State had a, has a, a, or a group on campus called the Resource Center for Persons with Disabilities. Um, and we worked with them quite a bit. They were the ones that told us how long a student should have um, uh, for extended time and exams. And they provided the the person that could do sign language for the student. And so they were our touch point. And it, you know, with, I don't, I, I've never heard a faculty person complain. That doesn't mean that that didn't happen, but I was never aware of anyone taking issue with a student, that, that student, or there were a couple that I've seen um, have, have that accommodation. And the uh, person that would do ASL was very good about blending into the wall so that she was there signing for the student, but you were not fully aware of her presence. So the student was able to get what she needed, but the person never interfered with your ability to get things done. So I, I think that was an important part, but yeah, I don't, I don't, for that, for those, for that particular circumstance with, with those students, I don't remember faculty having any issue. In fact, I think we had more concerns about extra time for exams than we did um, the, the student that was, uh, that was here in a pair that had someone there with them, right. which is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, last year around this time, I did a show on neurocognitive difference um, and um, and accommodations related to um, kind of all of the different um, learning disabilities and, and other um, issues that might require um, um, certain kinds of accommodations. And so I will definitely also um, share that um, episode again on the Facebook page because it was a, a really great episode that, that I think would be really helpful for a lot of people to kind of understand how this this piece works. So, um, Joe, I'm kind of curious. So LSU got rid of its um, document. Um, so I'm kind of curious to, to know where do you think, um, and, and chatting with your colleagues, because I know this is an issue that comes up um, across um, the deanlets <laughs> from time to time. Um, you know, what's your what's your sense on kind of where different schools are, and and what does the future look like with respect to um, these these types of documents? Yeah, 
we did a we did a survey a couple of years ago um, to look at which schools had um, technical standards documents, which schools um, didn't, and then what those technical standards documents looked at looked like. And at that time, um, it was about two thirds, maybe a little less than two thirds of the schools that had technical standards or essential skills documents, and about one third um, that didn't. Many of the schools that did had documents that dated back, you know, 10 or 15 years, and most of them had language in them that uh, really kind of talked about the, the specific motor skill or this or the um, the specific um, skill related to sight or hearing uh, that uh, that a student had. And very few of them. Um, actually talked about the essential skill as opposed to the physical or mental um, capacity that that an able-bodied person would use to to do those um, those things um, there certainly is a lot of talk about the need for some type of of uniform um, technical standard or essential um, skills document that schools could use to be able to um, develop language that wouldn't be a block or a um, roadblock to those that might be thinking about applying or, or those that, that get into the program, um, but would still allow for um, us to know that we're graduating veterinarians that, that are able to accomplish those, um, those essential skills. Um, what, what I found is that it really comes down a lot to the individual student that has the disability, which is no different than it is with any other student that we have in the program. There are a lot of able-bodied people that could never become a veterinarian because of all kinds of, of reasons. Um, we had a student that was deaf here at, um, uh, at LSU a number of years ago. Um, he, he did not um, use sign language. He, he lip-read. Um, and the accommodation in the classroom was that there was a person, there was a transcribist that, that basically took down everything that was said um, in class so that he would have, you know, and it was on front, in front of him on a monitor, um, and then he would get a transcript of, of everything that was said in the class. And what we found is that the, um, everybody in the class benefited from that. Um, this was before the, the days of lecture capture. Um, because everybody in the he, he shared what he had with everybody in the class, and everybody in the class actually um, had the advantage of what was um, was his accommodation. Um, when he got into uh, into surgery, we had to come up with some unique ways of of allowing for lip reading in a surgical environment where everybody is wearing masks. Um, uh, but you know, we were able to because of of his um, attitude toward. Um, helping us to figure out what the accommodation that was necessary for him, um, we were able to get through it. And, and the, the faculty typically will come on board with somebody that has that attitude and will you know, do whatever is necessary to help them uh, get through the, the program. And if you have somebody that, that, that doesn't have that attitude, that, that sees this as, well, you know, I have the right to this and you have to give it to me, um, you know, they're not going to yeah. be able to make it through, but that's no different than anybody that goes through the program. Right, right. So, um, uh, 
Chris, how do you see this um, shaping up? Um, because again, you have a different legal framework. It sounds though that in, in terms of day-to-day -day operations, it seems probably to play out very similarly the way that it does um, in the States. But um, what do you see for the future um, with regard to standards and skills in Canada? I think the thing that we, we, we've struggled with particularly is the issue related to licensing. I mean, as I said, we, we do not stream here. Every student um, meets the same core standards across all species. Um, and there are certainly things that could be more easily accommodated if students were restricted to which species they were dealing with. And again, based on my own experiences dealing with my wife, who, when she graduated, was much more able-bodied, um, is I could see that a student could potentially do our program in a wheelchair if they were restricted to small animals. Um, but that's not the way our program is built up. And it's certainly not the way in which licenses are given across the four provinces. Mm. And so that really is the issue. If, if the standard we meet is the general mixed animal practitioner with competence and expertise in cattle, horses, dogs, and cats as the four main species, that puts a requirement on the student. If that if that didn't exist, that could change things. Mm. Um, you know, and, I, and I've had this discussion with, with students in our program who are dealing with health issues. And they'll say to me, you know, it, it's unfair. You know, your wife's a veterinarian and she's in a wheelchair. If my health deteriorates, I won't be able to complete the program. And you know, that, that, that's a valid point. But unfortunately, life isn't fair. Getting sick isn't fair. Um, but that's the way the current standards are. If you graduate and your health deteriorates, you can make that personal decision to restrict your area of practice. You don't have any paperwork to, to back that up. But as a professional, knowing what the requirements of being a veterinarian are, you can reduce your area of, of practice. And so... My wife could not perform surgery. She could not rectal a cow. She could not do a lameness exam on a horse, et cetera. All those things are beyond her. She is able to read radiographs and do ultrasound um, examination. So the question really is how we tie in, in my mind, competence with licensure and deal with that issue of, of limits being placed upon people's competence by their abilities. and. and I don't know the answer to that. That's something yeah. I struggle with. You know, could you graduate from vet school and have a license that precludes you doing surgery? I, and I just don't know the answer to that. But that, to me, is the key to this. And so I know when our document was put together, it was very much based on the competencies as outlined in the CP, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, that those were sort of mm -hmm. seen as a, a national set of standards in the ability to work with the different species, perform surgery, do a medicine exam, et cetera. But to me, that's that that's the issue is how do we define the practice of veterinary medicine? And is that defined by the school? Is that defined by the licensing um, authority at the state or provincial level? Or is it defined nationally? And, and I don't think we've ever had, really had that discussion. Yeah. That's an interesting this discussion because my previous institution, our students didn't track. Um, but where I am now, they do track. And, and there are a few students that I'm pretty certain that 
are going to graduate in 2018 that I would never want to be around a horse or a cow yeah, um, yeah. for their safety and the safety of the animals. And but yet they're going they passed the Napoli 94 percent pass rate. And um, so um, what. But you're right. Within their, their license to practice veterinary medicine in North America. And, yeah. and I don't know if the state law, the states specifically say you must be able to dot, 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 um, because some of them really aren't able to dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And that, as I said, that that's really where I'm coming from. So we don't track. And in Western Canada, certainly if you're in downtown Vancouver, you may not be doing horses or cows. But if you're on the prairies in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta or northern BC, you will be doing all of that. So a competency in our program is to be able to perform a rectal examination on a cow. Mm -hmm. And you could envisage a, um, a sort of structure that would strap a student into, which would allow them to do that. The issue that we've never had to address, and I don't know how we deal with it, is the safety issue of a student strapped into a structure behind mm -hmm. a cow in a cattle facility. And so, you know, right now, we're using our language within our thing, which says accommodations cannot compromise animal well-being or safety of the people involved. And it's never been challenged. Um, but that, that that's really, I think, where this comes from. And it's a debate that we can have with schools, but unless we're dealing with our licensing body, it, it's yeah. really problematic because I'm a large animal guy. It concerns me that students graduate with a license to practice. And they're going to practice theoretically they have the license to practice on horses and cows but they don't know what they're doing yeah yeah so so, so chris so uh, so i would i would challenge you there then um so you see as a large animal practitioner um and and one with with without the disability that would prevent you from from palpating a cow um, that that you know your skill at being able to palpate is critical to um, your being able to function as a large animal practitioner. Um, mm -hmm. I would argue that you know the 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 skill of palpation you know is mm -hmm. something that there are a lot of non veterinarians that have that skill set that could do the palpation, tell you what they felt, and you would be able to make the decision relative to the diagnosis, the treatment plan, um, what needed to be done in terms of follow-up, the things that a veterinarian um, actually is getting paid uh, mm -hmm. to do, um, would that be an appropriate accommodation for somebody in a wheelchair? Um, I think it's a really valid point, but it comes back to this thing that I struggle with, that anybody coming to North America wanting to practice veterinary medicine there is a CPE exam and a requirement of that CPE exam is to diagnose whether a cow is pregnant or not. So we've, we've, mm -hmm. got, a, we've got a bar that has been set. And the question is, do we remove that bar from individuals because it is not, not possible for them to meet that bar? And that's the discussion that I think needs to be had at the national level because mm -hmm. the schools or the individual licensing authorities aren't having that discussion. So you mean like limited licensure? Oh, sorry, Joe. So you're licensed to do small animal versus large animal? I, I think that becomes part of what we're talking about. I think that sort of becomes a logical thing that's down the road from this discussion, but that is a much bigger issue, obviously. 
I was going to bring that up that that, you know, that that was kind of floating around in the background that 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 if licensing um, licensure drives some of this, particularly in, in Canada, then limited licensure changing the way that licensing is done um, would then potentially drive a change in um, in the way that the standards are are written and applied. Maybe <laughs> so. So, the other thing to think about yeah. in terms of looking at this is, you know, we graduate somebody um, as a veterinarian, somebody with, a, you know, a, a DVM. We don't we don't license them. You know, the, if somebody graduates from LSU uh, and decides that they want to go into some area of, the, of veterinary practice that does not require a, a license, there's no need for them um, to get licensed. And, you know, I wouldn't guarantee to every student that comes through here that graduates that they will necessarily be able to get licensed in, you know, a certain state or a municipality that they might want to go into. Um, I think we need to we need to think about that as well. We're not the ones licensing them. The licensing board needs to decide if somebody in a wheelchair can be a, a large animal um, practitioner. Um, but that doesn't mean that they they can't be a veterinarian and still function quite well within the profession but i think one of the issues though is that um and i'm choosing my words carefully here lisa those that have been in positions to make those types of decisions in the past have tended to only choose people that looked like them historically yeah. um and so that's the big issue right is that when someone comes along and and they may look like you but they're seated I'm not certain that they will be given the same due consideration. And in fact, I think past history says they won't, right? So it worries me to say the licensing people should, should do that because I, you know, when I go to AAVMC and the people come from the AA, what the veterinary say, they don't even look like me. So, and I'm able-bodied. So if we're talking about someone who's seated or walking with crutches, I worry that their best interest, and I don't want Lisa to get any emails. I, I'm not saying this for certain, but you know, we, we're humans. We're a flawed species. So I just we have to think about that. That how how likely are they to think about the interests of people that are so very different from them? And some people, you are. I mean, some people are very much able to do that, but there are others that are not. So I mean, maybe I'm missing the point here, and I, I don't know enough about the state boards in the in the U.S., but in certainly with the four provinces that we answer to as a regional college, the requirement for them to grant license is a veterinary degree from an accredited university. So if you have a, a, um, a veterinary degree from an accredited university, you can apply for license. As long as you're in good standing with your previous licensed areas, you'll be granted a license. Um, so the, the degree becomes the automatic passport to licensure and that that's where the two things have got to i believe have a conversation to try to to deal with this issue because otherwise it's always the other person's problem to deal with yeah so i think this is a good time to ask the question what should we tell applicants <laughs> what should applicants know about these standards and skills and as you know uh the vimcast application will be opening in a few short months and i'm sure that there's always going to be a pool of of students who um 
will need various types of accommodations. Um, so what should they know going in? Well, I would love for them to, to say, I would say to them to please look at the institutions that you're interested in applying to, read what their technical standards are, speak with the the people, the admissions folks there and, and, and apply. I think it, most of us will say, come to the campus, um, visit us, see how things feel, um, and check, check the temperature of the institution and, and then you can make a decision from there. Yeah. I would, the other thing I would say to them is while the technical standards are important, and I think this, this applies to any applicant, which is volunteer in a veterinary practice be involved in the practice of veterinary medicine and see what practice involves on a day-to-day -day basis and and then you can start to make a determination how does this for me right that that's really the big thing is go into it with your eyes open because it's not so much what the paperwork says you need to be in a practice and see what the practice of veterinary medicine involves mm -hmm. And then that, that student who can then see that involve themselves and come up with the solution for themselves is a student who's going to be able to um, be successful. Yeah, and that's a, I mean, that's a, a, um, a, a great suggestion. Certainly we know that students um, do an enormous amount of, of um, experiential hours this year, just the, the um, the veterinary and animal contact hours were close to 2000 when you combine the two of them um, and then another four to 500 when you include the research pieces. And so um, that's really also a, a great opportunity to see how you navigate those spaces and really try to get um, some diverse experiences so that you not only have exposure to different kinds of practice, but how you're able um, individually to navigate in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Joe, any uh, any recommendations for prospective applicants? Yeah, I think what Chris said is is vitally important because um, the important thing is for the applicant to um, determine whether or not their individual disability, their individual situation will allow them um, to do the things that are necessary to be a veterinarian, the things that veterinarians do. And the only way to really know that is to um, work with veterinarians who are open to um, you know, exploring the different accommodations that might be necessary in the environment that veterinarians are working. We had a, we had a student that graduated not too long ago from here um, that, that didn't have any hands. She had lost her arms from her elbows down. Um, and when the first time that she applied, you know, the, the when she interviewed, one of the surgeons, you know, said, well, there's no way that she could be a veterinarian because she could never do surgery. Um, and yet the veterinarian that she worked for said, well, she does everything in my practice that I would do. I got to believe she would be able to do surgery. Um, she's now graduated from here and she's a faculty member at LSU and she's teaching surgery. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's awesome. That's a mic drop. Right. <laughs> I don't know what to say after that. So. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. We might have to have her on the show uh, at some point to, to talk about her experiences. That'd be great. I'll so just have is... one other thing if I could, which is the other thing is a student who has, an, has um, 
uh, a challenge would be to try and put them in contact with a veterinarian who's faced a similar challenge. I mean, certainly we've, we've done that in our program with students with some degree of hearing loss, put them in contact with a, a veterinarian in practice who faces the same issues. Yeah. Because I'm not able to coach the student on how to deal with those things, but someone who's actually been in that situation can, can give them very, very clear um, coping skills or suggestions or various other things to to deal with that. So that, that that's another thing I'd add, not just working with any veterinary practice, but if there was a way to shadow a veterinarian who faced a similar challenge would be another way to really measure up where your capabilities fit with the ability to perform the, the job on a daily basis. It's a great idea. And, and certainly we know that um, everyone needs mentors and uh, and needs uh, to, to find someone, as Coretta said, that, that looks like them and, and um, could, you know, determine whether or not this is something that um, they too can pursue and do. So great. Well, folks, this has been a fantastic conversation, um, really interesting stuff. So um, if you are um, listening to the show and you have um, uh, contact with prospective students, please, um, who have um, any type of various limitations that they think might be too limiting for veterinary medicine, certainly um, share this podcast with them and um, and uh, encourage those students to reach out um, to institutions where they may have an interest to, to learn more about what individual requirements they have, as well as um, any issues related to licensing on, on um, post-graduation, right? Um, because there may be different things um, at different um, in different countries that that um, you know they may find that they really need to learn more information about. So um, thank you each of you for taking an hour out of your your day. I really appreciate it. Thank you, my pleasure. It's been really uh, helpful to actually listen to everybody else's views. Actually. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so with that, we will wrap up another episode of uh, AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to like our Facebook page, um, Diversity and Inclusion on Air, um, and uh, click subscribe to uh, our YouTube channel, um, as well as um, our audio versions of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, um, or your favorite podcast app. Um, until next time, thank Thank you for listening. Thank you.